ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just a reminder, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, join the SRB Table of Ranks by going to my Patreon page and becoming a monthly patron. It doesn't take much. $5 gets you an SRB shot glass and a refrigerator magnet. For $10, you get all that plus a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press. The SRB podcast is a one-man operation, and your support will help keep it going. So don't hesitate. Get out your wallet and go to seansrussiablog.org and become a patron. Beginning in the 15th century, the Principality of Moscow began expanding in every geographical direction, incorporating land and people into an autocratic state. Over the next three centuries, Russia's Tsars provided over an ever-expanding empire, so that by the beginning of the 19th century, Paul I ruled over a vast multi-ethnic and multi-confessional land that spanned the Eurasian landmass. How was this possible? What was the Russian Empire in the early modern era? How did the autocratic state bind all of these various peoples, religions, and cultures? For some insight, I turn to one of the preeminent historians of the period, Nancy Coleman. Nancy Coleman is the William H. Bonsall Professor of History at Stanford University, specializing in early modern Russia. She's the author of several books, including Crime and Punishment in Early Modern Russia, By Honor Bound, State and Society in Early Modern Russia, and Kinship and Politics, The Making of the Muscovite Political System, 1345 to 1547. Her most recent book is The Russian Empire, 1450 to 1801, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Nancy Coleman. So your book, The Russian Empire, 1450 to 1801, is dedicated to Edward Keenan. And you write that when you were at, studying at Harvard, he and um, Omeljan Pritsak taught you and your co graduate co cohort to be Eurasianists. And that is, as you write, to take Russian history out of a narrow and ultimately ahistorical national context and set it in its international setting. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about Akinin and Pritsak's influence on you and why a Eurasianist view of Russian his of the Russian Empire is uh, crucial. I'm happy to do that. I am such an admirer of Emilian Pritsak and, and Edward Keenan. They they were they both passed away by now, but they they were both very, very brilliant scholars. The the roots of their brilliance were both their imagination, their historical analytical imagination and their linguistic skills. Pritsak had uh, encountered Eurasianism, I think, in his um, graduate and postgraduate years in Ukraine and in Europe, and he brought it to Harvard, and I think uh, Keenan probably learned it from him. And the Eurasianist approach is really exciting because it's a grand sweeping way of looking at the history of, they focused on early roots, uh, particularly, and when you look at the origins of the early Rus state in the 800s and the 900s, in the international global context of the rhythms of the trade routes that were the Silk Road trade and the European Mediterranean trade 
and the Byzantine world's trade, it was truly, truly exciting to be taken out of a world in which you're thinking about Russia first or any particular nation first, but rather this exciting rhythm of all of these people moving through forests and across the steppe as uh, Fritzak used to talk about the steppe as a, like an ocean and the caravans of the Silk Road were like an ocean and it connected people from east to west. And it was just really exciting. So why is it a crucial lens for Russian history? I think it, um, a, a Eurasian approach starting from those early centuries, but all the way through Russian history gets you attuned to the interactions the dependencies of uh, Russia, which is up there in the forest with the world of the steppe and then that southerly band of urban trade centers and uh, major cities all the way from the Mediterranean through the Black Sea through the Middle East, all the way far east, so that you get to thinking about Russian history in a non-parochial manner, but you see the rhythms of trade and geopolitical attention that shaped Russian history, and that followed Russia all the way through the 17th and 18th century as it expanded across Siberia, down into the steppe, towards Central Asia. These are all because of the rhythms of that forest steppe interaction and trade routes. It was remarkably exciting, and these men were so brilliant. Just listening to them was so brilliant. Um, what's pretty exciting about Keenan, as I work the most with Keenan, um, is that in addition to the Eurasianist approach, he had, uh, both of them had a sort of sources first approach. You build the history from the sources up. You don't start with a received opinion about any particular nation or national story or national boundaries. You just look at where the sources are telling you to look. And, and each of them had broad, open minds. And so Keenan was always good about starting something afresh. You know, he would take the history, say, of the city of Novgorod, which is usually called a Russian trade city. But he, he would talk about it as a Baltic trade city. Let's look at the patterns of the Baltic trade and the German Hansa. And where are the trade coming into Novgorod? Where is it coming through from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth? He would give you a broader sense of what's going on. And he was always great at flipping the, the custom way you might have been taught to, to think about Russian history and to think about it a little bit more uh, openly. He was also great for something that I've continued to work on, which is a kind of comparative and a theoretical approach. That is, he used to constantly read anthropology and other disciplines and tell us all about you know, some study on Iran that he thinks is relevant to, to Russia. And I would, I have done a lot of that myself too. I think Ottoman history is quite relevant as a comparative nexus and anthropology and is helpful looking at political systems. So those two men were just wonderful to study with. Yeah, and I also think this approach looking at it as a, as a Eurasian interconnected with the other Eurasian empires and other peoples of Eurasia is because I, I don't know about you, but one of my one of the assumptions a lot of my students have when I teach about Russian history is the idea that Russia is some sort of isolated island. And so I, I think by doing that, it really allows for students and others, readers to understand that you know, it's very interwoven with, as you said, the rhythms of this vast landmass. Yeah, it's a, it's a, 
it's a kind of liberating approach because it also, you know, we know from Russian history that from the 19th or even 18th century on, Russians geopolitically and culturally have been looking west to Europe, and Europe was the standard. And so we tend to think of Russia in comparison to Europe, and um, and you know, Russia usually falls short on the cultural comparison. And um, and so we forget that, uh, you know, that, of course, is absolutely true for the 18th, the modern centuries, 18th and 19th and all. But Russia was also simultaneously a Eurasian empire with lots of trade and lots of geopolitical connections to the south and to the east. Um, and the favor in Europe makes us not understand how much Russia borrowed or had in common with those other European continental empires, Eurasian continental empires. Much of your work uh, is on early modern, or you focus on early modern Russia, and a lot of much of your work has focused on the legal system and on the court uh, politics and and rituals. So, talk about the legal culture of, of Muscovy, and and particularly the sources and methods you use to understand it. Yeah, I might start though saying, you know, one reason why I study the law. Um, was to see whether there was a functional legal culture, that is, whether um, the, the Tsar had arbitrary power or whether the, the, the laws were written down and then followed by a judicial system of some sort. And I think I was inspired by that topic because um, I wrote one book on litigations about personal honor and another book about litigations on the criminal law and the practice of those two systems. And I'm sure I was inspired by the uh, this other big discourse, in addition to empire, that discourse about Russia that um, uh, has, since the 16th century, talked about Russia as being violent and barbarian and not like Europe. You know, you get this in the foreign travelers already starting in the 16th century. And um, that sense of Russia being different and alien and, and backward and, and all of that. So I, I wanted to try to... Um, see how the state exerted its power in the law, particularly when I studied the criminal law. I thought, well, here's where the rubber hits the road. You know, how much did they use capital punishment? How much did they execute? How terrible were the tortures? And um, what I found in both of those studies, especially the criminal law study, um, was that if you, and here's your sources question, if you read the court cases, you find that they follow the law, there were written laws. They were pretty simple procedural laws, um, but the laws were followed. And in a comparative context, Russian laws were much less sophisticated than European laws at the time, but they were influenced by the revival of European Roman law in Europe in the 16th century and the 17th century. They had a lot of elements. It's just that the Russia lacked that jurisprudential um, legacy that Europe had in terms of the canon lawyers and then private lawyers and law schools and juridical faculties. So they didn't have a very sophisticated literature about the law. Russian law codes are really simple. They didn't explain to you why we're doing torture. They didn't explain things in a way, but they just, they didn't even say only three torture sessions. But then you realize in practice by reading the cases, oh, they limit themselves to two to three torture sessions. And um, there are certain sort of limits within most cases about the use of torture. That's discussed in European law codes. It's just there in the 
Russian codes, you may torture if you have these three conditions, something like that. But at any rate, I found by reading a lot of court cases and comparing it to the law, I saw that Russia had a pretty simple but functional uh, legal culture that wasn't arbitrary. So I guess I'm attacking that despotism thesis about Russia, yeah, which is pretty old these days. You know, we should move beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's too bad it, it it has it's captured a lot of the you know public imagination about about Russian history in general. But the other thing too, I think, is important to that you point out, and other scholars have pointed out, like Jane Burbank and the others, especially those who've worked on peasant courts in the, in the mid to late nineteenth century, is that Russians used the courts and used them a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and she can, she can, she's got the sources much better than I do in terms of counting, so she can say they use them a lot. I can simply say people did use those courts. We have cases, and we have not only peasants who are serfs, we have peasants who were slaves using the court system. You have Tatars and Siberians and Yakuts, uh, so all social classes, all genders, all subjects of the Tsar use the court cases. You know, I can't say what percentage of the population, how often used the law codes, but it was quite clear people turned to this system when they had a grievance that, you know, a family member had been injured or murdered or something like that. And um, and they then used the courts properly. And one of the really fun things for me as I got into that research on the criminal law was to ask the question, well, who, who, who knows the law? Where is the judicial expertise if you don't have lawyers? Because we didn't have lawyers, we didn't have law schools. Who's getting this right? You know, who's telling them? And Russia didn't even have a very strong tradition of notaries, which you have in Europe, who are the educated people who write up the documents for you so you know you're submitting the right thing to the court. But apparently, Russia, definitely Russia had a centralized bureaucracy with these clerics called Diki. D-I-A-K-I, Diki, the Diki. And they become the sort of heroes of the story because they're the ones, I think, who in their spare time were writing documents and telling the people how to submit and how to phrase their their plea so that they, you know, speak to the law and they present themselves correctly. There were a few public notary-type scribes in big cities who also had that knowledge. There's a little bit of evidence that big estates, you know, a big landlord that had a lot of estates would have one kind of bailiff who knew how to write court documents to submit to the court. So that knowledge was out there, but it was mostly in the bureaucracy. And they were the ones that kept the judges in line. You know, they told the judge, here's the law, here's the evidence, here's what you should decide. And you see this all written out. They're beautifully long. When you get a full, complete case, it's very step-by-step of all of the evidence gathering and then the, the scribe filling the judge in on all of the relevant law and then the decision. It's, it's really hmm. quite orderly. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly. Surprising. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the sources are great too because you know, anyone who works with court cases, um, you, you uncover, uncover all sorts of other fun things along the way. How are they They're preserved? A slice of life. They're pretty well. Pretty well, um, starting in the 17th century. I mean, I'm, we have the criminal law being talked about already in the 1497 law code and a 1550 law code and then another 15, uh, late 15th, 16th century one. But you don't really have transcripts of court cases until the early 17th century, just from, I think, document loss 
um, as the bureaucracy got developed in the 17th century, and they're really thick starting in the late 17th century for most of the local areas, and then the 18th century is totally replete with local legal sources that could could well be studied. Yeah, yeah. They just had better bureaucracy and better record keeping. Well, we need to get some students to study the 18th century now. <laughs> um, so your new book, again, The Russian Empire, 1450 to 1801, is a thematic synthesis of a lot of recent scholarship on early modern Russia. And it's really wonderful to see so much being done now. So why did you see the need to write this book? Well, I didn't see anything out there like it. Um, you know, about two months before I published my book, which was January of 17, um, Val Kibelson and Ron Suni published a big survey history called Russia's Empires, plural. Um, and so now there is my book and their book, but their book goes from the ninth century or so all the way to the present. Um, so it's a nice compliment, um, and I admire those two scholars a lot. My work is definitely early modern, and it, it covers 1450 to 1801, so you, so you get a lot of depth. Mine's longer than their book, too, so I get a lot of depth. So I have the opportunity to do two things. What I wanted to do when I decided to take on this project was to respond to the two of the main themes that, as you know, had become kind of important after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There were probably more, too. But the things that I noticed right away is that when the Soviet Union collapsed, historians in Russia and abroad began to sit back and say, well, we've spent all this time studying the path to the Bolshevik Revolution as historians and studying how the Soviet system worked, but we didn't um, pay much attention to the church because the Soviet Union didn't like studying um, religion. Um, and then empire was the other big thing that everybody started studying. It was like this big boom in the 1990s and ever since then. Um, of people actually studying the constituent subject peoples, the Russian Empire, and thinking more about Russia instead of this Moscow-centric. So what's, that's what I want to do in this book, is make it less Moscow-centric to talk about the diversity of the empire. But it's still somewhat Moscow-centric because I asked the question, how did Russia govern all these areas? Um, and then I also wanted to bring religion in as much as I could, so I devote about a lot of attention as much as I can to regional differences, you know, the different religions from Lutheranism to Calvinism, Catholicism, and Islam is a big actor in Russian empire. So I put a lot of religion in there, and then the varieties of the orthodoxy with the old belief and the Uniate Church and all of that. So I wanted to bring that forward and particularly talk about Russia as empire instead of implicitly as the Russian nation. Now, in, in getting to this question of empire, I mean, you note, and, and others have too, that with the, with the Ottoman, along with the Ottoman and the Safavid and the Mughals and the Chinese empires, the Russian empire was um, what Jane Burbank called in her book with, um, I forget his name now. Uh, Fred Cooper. Fred Cooper, thank you. Yeah, it, they called it an empire of difference and, and that it ruled through a politics of difference. So what is meant by this and, and what does it say to you about the, the Russia as an empire? Well, I definitely admire and use their book a lot, um, and they're not the only ones saying that. You know, this concept of an empire of difference is alive and well in um, the studies of Ottoman history as well. Um, so there, I also relied on a book by Karen Barkey, um, 
who is an Ottomanist who talks about Empire of Difference, I think is the title of her book about the Ottoman Empire. And so the concept here is that these continental empires, of which um, the Mongols was the, the most celebrated one, and the most articulated one of the steppe empires, and then the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire the, and the Chinese and the Mongol, uh, Mughal, um, all of these share the issue of controlling large swaths of space, contiguous space, um, that uh, is populated by a lot of different peoples uh, in the steppe and in the forest and very sparsely populated. So you've got real challenges of governance over this territory, but it is valuable territory to want to govern because of the Silk Roads. It's, a, it's you know, the place of the Silk Roads. It's the place of Siberian furs and various other resources. It's the nexus to the great Mediterranean and Middle Eastern trade centers and all of that. And so, so these empires follow the Mongol model, which was probably following the Chinese model, um, of tolerating the difference of the constituent peoples as long as the central empire controlled what it needed to control. And um, so they would tolerate, like in the Russian case, I could be specific, so they would conquer an area and they would allow local elites to stay in place as long as they proved they were loyal. You know, they would use a lot of coercive power to get rid of the elites that were revolting and to stop any military action and opposition, but then they would allow local elites, local courts, local language, local religion, local institutions, all of that infrastructure that provided daily life, that could stay. So, you know, the Tatars in Kazan live a life differently than the native peoples in Siberia, than the Baltic Germans in Ravel, Tallinn, and stuff like that. And that's okay for the imperial center. The thing about these empires of difference is that they, they control from the top. The Russian Empire was very clear what it wanted, and what it wanted was to control the means of violence, as all states do. So they, they had to be the, the, the fortress and you know control people against revolting and take military power to continue expanding. So that so there are only three things the Russian state kind of insisted um, at, on controlling across the empire. So one was violence. The other one was resources. They'd mobilize people and, and uh, uh, taxation and stuff like that. And the third was the criminal law. That provided a, a criminal law across the realm for the highest, highest, highest crimes. And then everything else was local. And that allowed for a really stable empire. And the Russian Empire was a stable empire. It lasted a long time without a lot of revolt, you know, really literally without a lot of revolt. Because people live their own daily lives. And um, and that and the Ottomans were doing the same thing. And the Chinese were doing the same thing. That's how you govern uh, an empire in this part of the world, you know, between the sparsity of the population and the distances involved and the diversity of that population. So, so an empire of difference model is, it certainly fits the historical facts, and it helps you understand some of the basic structures these empires so i i and how does it help us understand russia as an empire i think it it really uh you know it explains a lot of elements of russia as an empire
that it, it <laughs> I don't want to repeat myself, but it, we think of Russia as an empire. We know it's centralized. We know it had a bureaucracy. But if you look at that bureaucracy, it's a pretty skeletal one. And it only does so many things. It doesn't do schools and hospitals and, you know, universities and until quite later. You know, it doesn't do daily social services. It just, you know, does the control that the state wants. It, it, but it also, I think, speaks to this, this big debate that you referenced earlier, and that is the issue of Russian despotism. Right. If if Russia is a despotic state, you you would think that a politics of difference would be the farthest thing it would practice. Right. Except, <laughs> except that they can't, you know, think of what centuries we're talking about. You know, they don't have the manpower. And in fact, Russia, as you know, is always desperate for manpower. You know, there are times when Peter the Great is trying to expand that army. He's recruiting priests. He's recruiting dip, uh, bureaucrats. Everybody gets recruited in the army because he doesn't have enough people. Um and so they can't not see what I called in the book. I, I said the politics of difference is basically empire on the cheap. That is, if you can't afford to, to you know, have your own Russians moving into the countryside to create the bureaucracy to control people with the fortresses and all of that, then you use the intermediary, you subcontract, you know, you use the, the local services so that, but then what you get is a, a tremendous variety of quality of life across the empire. That is in Ukraine and the Baltic German lands, you have universities, you have schools, you have a high level of literacy. And over in the, uh, in Siberia, you have nomadic tribes with very basic social services provided by family groups. Um, and so that's okay from the center's point of view. You know, so that they they can't exert a despotic authority on every minutia of life. But on the other hand, I use a term in the book um, that they were single-minded about those three things I enumerated. They were single-minded about about controlling the resources. That is, you know, they enserved people to make sure they got that labor. For the, you know, they moved people to settle Western Siberia. They moved people down into the steppe as they moved into the Black Earth. They were very coercive in getting what they wanted out of that, because um, uh, it's a resource poor environment. You know, Russia doesn't have a lot of resources, and so they're going to grab what they can. And better, I make this point maybe in the conclusion that they did a better job than the Ottomans, which was that. They, they never let go of that control. They were really single-minded about it. So, for example, they never sold offices as venalities, which you get in France, and you get that in the Ottoman, because that means they get a lump sum up front, which is very short-sighted, and then they power local power slips into the hands of local nobilities, and they, they're not controlling. So, in a sense, it is, it's not despotic power, but it's strong central power they never let go and they never let local nobilities develop into sort of notables of power power pockets. They moved their governors around a lot, very a lot, so that they couldn't create local nests, you know. So they were really bloody-minded about power that they wanted. So in a sense, it's certainly autocratic if it's not despotic. So these two balance each other out, you know, strong control where they need it, empire difference, all the rest. Hmm. So how did they, you know, you know, on the one hand, with these three things, they were it was non-negotiable. But nevertheless, here they have to bind together this vast territory of difference under a unitary state. 
So that is centered in Moscow. So how and what mechanisms did they use to keep this system together to make it so stable? Well, um, I think partly the stability is based on the tolerance. But so what did they do to try to create a, a sense and reality that it's all one state ruled by one sort? Well, uh, you know, I don't think they had a lot of cohesion. You know, this is early modern conditions, and so you're you're not really talking about national unity and pride. Um, but what they did was, first of all, they used what Karen Barkey calls a supranational ideology, and Jane Burbank and Fred Cooper talk about as um, repertories of power or something like that. So at any rate, they they. They broadcast this concept that the Tsar was the Tsar for everybody. He's an Orthodox ruler, he's pious, but he's kind and he's just, and he gives a judicial system that serves everybody, and he gives recourse to his people. You can always petition the Tsar. So they put forward this ideology. Then they broadcast that through rituals um, and architecture churches and things like that. So they made their presence known. They also used fortresses and the military presence in all the places to remind people that they have the military force to control um, if they uh, if people want to revolt. Um, so I think, though, and then the other thing they did was, um, and again, uh, Barkey and Burbank and Cooper talk about this, they built the empire on what, what you might call vertical integration. That is, they made deals with all these subject peoples. Um, and so they didn't want horizontal communication. They didn't want the nobilities of the Ukrainian Cossacks getting to know the Baltic German nobilities and the Tatar elites all discovering that they had class interests together. So, so what they did was they built these separate deals um, that uh, in the 19th century are reflected in certain law codes for certain kinds of subject peoples. But so they made these, these separate deals. So the Don Cossacks had, um, an agreement that the Tsar would subsidize their weapons and their grain shipments in order that on Cossacks would give military service. And then, you know, their deal with the Baltic Germans was a different sort of taxation and a continuation of the Baltic German representative institutions. And, you know, so they, so, so if you drew a picture, every group, every religion, Every ethnic group connected vertically to the Tsar. You petition to the Tsar directly, um, and you ask for the rights that your group is expected, you know, has come to expect that they can have from the Tsar. And, and, and that is, is a, is a stabilizing factor in the sense that you keep the rest of the society atomized from each other. So in a sense, Karen Barkey says, you don't want a lot of cohesion in an empire, a Eurasian empire. You know, <laughs> you don't want, you really don't want those connections to be horizontally being built anyway. You just want to spread out enough either coercive or ideological concepts, you know, course of power or ideological concepts to, to make people understand who rules them, but to rule them with a light hand. There's a there's like an image that you mentioned uh, of the uh, a bicycle wheel. It's a radial configuration. Yeah, that's it. So that the the center is the hub, and all these separate deals are the spokes. But but then there's not a lot of a rim. The rim is kind of open because the rim would imply 
you know, local connections across uh, across like groups. So yeah, so that so that hub and spokes model <laughs> works pretty well. I think that comes from Karen Barkey. Now, the the relationship. I mean, one of the things too with all of this is that Russia's SARS attempted to fix its population, right? To to fix it physically in place through serfdom and also the like you said making these various deals of of dispersing rights to certain people but not others but nonetheless you as you mentioned in your book there's a good amount of mobility people are moving all over the place so talk about this dynamic between on the one hand trying to fix the population and the mobility on the other and how it shaped the russian state's relationship to society well, there's two kinds of mobility. There's geographic mobility and social mobility that, that you might be thinking about. And geographic mobility, um, I guess it get it comes down to the the state's limited resources to actually control, even though they're um, attempting to fix people in place. So uh, it is true that they pretty successfully um, inserted most of the East Slavic peasants. Those were the Russians in the heartland. The same process is happening to the East Slavic peasants in modern-day Ukraine and Belarus in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. That event, that land eventually ends up in Russian hands at the end of the 18th century. So the East Slavic peasants were inserted, and that's a, a dual process, coercive process that the, the landlords enforced because it was in their self-interest, and then the state backed them up. And so but you still shouldn't think about a, a totally fixed society because there were, people were constantly running away from serfdom. And there's a school of thought that says you need, you know, when you've got enough land to run away from, um, then you have to insert peasants. You have to legally try to pin them down or else they, of course, they'll go to a better landlord or a better location like down in the south. Um, and so people were constantly running away. And the thing about the Russian Empire was that when they ran to the south, they often encountered the fortresses on the southern wall because the Russian Empire was expanding kind of um, piecemeal, gradually, step by step. They would build a fortress line, the fortresses, the fortifications, and they would bring in peasants behind it. And when that they felt comfortable, they'd move 20 miles farther south and do it again. And so they were those governors in the fortress line. Kira Stevens has a book about this. Um, they were constantly needing people to be their local guards, their local Cossacks, their local musketeers. So if somebody showed up who was a runaway serf, they would just ignore that inconvenient reality, and and they would make them a musketeer, and they'd give them some land to farm, you know, which is they're not supposed to have land to farm if they're a musketeer, and you know they're breaking all of the rules of the center because of exigencies. And so I think that's the mobility that you have in mind is that even within a situation of um, ensurfment, people could flee um, and then and 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 try and kind of float themselves up into a different social class um, because there was need everywhere for more um, uh, uh, 
laboring hands. And then the other thing is the 18th century. Well, there's two more things I wanted to say. One is the 18th century. The 18th century is this incredible century of demographic growth all over Europe. Um, the climate is getting a little better after some little ice ages and, and all across Europe. The population is booming, and in Russia it's booming, and the economy is booming, and then Russia is also expanding into more fertile territories, and they're starting to grow export grain. And grain can be exported north to their own populations or south to wheat got sold to the Mediterranean and European markets. And so it's a time of a tremendous economic opportunity. And what happens is that even these enserved peasants, there's two categories you might say of enserved peasants. They're the ones that are owned by the landlords. And then the rest of the peasants that don't actually have a landlord because they live in areas where it's just too barren for the landlord to be supported, like in the far north. But the peasants living up there north of Moscow, um, they are called the state peasants. Um, and they're still kind of enserfed because they can't move from where they live because this makes an easy way for the state to find them and tax them and connect with them in a sense. So you've got the state peasants and you've got the serfs. But in the 18th century, they're all moving. That is, landlords are moving whole villages down to the black land to make money in the grain market. Or landlords up in the center are saying, I can buy grain on the market, so I'm going to turn my village into a manufacturing village and sell small products on the market um, because St. Petersburg is becoming an export to the West market and all sorts of opportunities are opening up. And so, and then state peasant villages can do the same thing. They can decide to send half of their young men to go work in the industrial plants and send home their salaries, or they can send their, you know, some of their young peasants on the road to be traveling peddlers and things like that. So you just get this century of mobility of simple peasants. Their markets are all over the place, um, town to town, and then big regional markets. Um, so people are constantly on the move in the 18th century. And so then, so that creates social mobility because even when the context of serfdom, you have some peasants getting richer behind the guise of their landlord allowing them to do it. You know, there's two nice books, Stephen Hoff and Denison, um, two economic studies of the peasants late 18th century that show that entrepreneurial peasants could do pretty well for themselves, even though they were, you know, they had to do it behind the legal facade of their landlord. Um, so that there's a lot going on there. So there's, so that even if they're not moving out of the social, the socialist state of being a peasant, they're doing better for themselves. And then some people could actually run away, slip into the city, become artisans and become merchants and actually move up in social class to the point where you get in the 18th century, that whole new category called people of another class, you know, because they were just people filling in the in between the nobility and the peasants, all those other more professional and merchant. And then there was a merchant category as well, but that happened. And the other thing I want to point out is that um, there may be the Russian empire begin to have censuses in the 18th century. So you begin to know what the population is and, and the statistics will show that, it's about 85 to 90% peasant. Those people were serfs, but half of them were state peasants and half of them were landlord serfs. So that still leaves 15% of the population that doesn't really have 
formal legal limits on their mobility. And so they're the ones in the socialist states, you know, they're merchants, they're nobles, but they're also Baltic Germans and they're Ukrainian Cossacks and various other Tatar Mursi or Tatar peasants or whatever. But there's a lot of, you know, these are, these categories are very fungible, especially in the 18th century. So that there's um, physical movement and social movement beyond the the pale of, um, of serfdom. So anyway, this empire, as I say, they're they're using serfdom to get the resources and the labor services that the state needs, but they can't really control the dynamism, especially as the population grows. Right, and in some respects, it's it's a good idea not to. Yeah, well, exactly, because <laughs> right. the state is getting wealthy in the 18th century with their own, you know, benefits from trade and mining and things like that, and then. Their, their aristocracy is getting wealthy, and then they're, they're very loyal to the autocracy. Yeah, so it's in everybody's interest. Now, in your in your conclusion, you, you make a really interesting um, uh, statement, and and that is, you write, early modern Russia did not develop the sort of discourses of national consciousness that emerged in 16th and 17th century Europe, for good reason. What what do you mean by this? Yeah. When I said for good reason. <laughs> I know what I, I, I meant. There's There are historical explanations for that. <laughs> I didn't mean to say it's a good thing not to have national consciousness. <laughs> I'm going to mean it that way. But I meant for, for, for reasons we can understand. That is, you know, in many ways, as you know, Europe is the outlier. You know, Europe is the unique phenomenon in global history of these centuries. And the European uniqueness that we all love and treasure comes from that amazing coming together in European post-Roman times of Roman law, canon law from the church, and Germanic codes, and all those peoples, you know, the memory and the people of the aristocrats of Rome and the lawyers of the church and all of that. That all comes together in Europe to create a, a, a gradual, an increasing sense of political pluralism you know, and uh, defended by law. So you start with charters by the no noblemen in the 1200s. You get those in Hungary and Poland and England. And then you get more and more rights and privileges being get, uh, gained by merchant classes. That's the story of the rise of the West, you know. And at the same time, out of the Roman heritage comes these concepts of patria and nazio. And um, that... It's an old story of how by the 16th century European countries are each coming to think of themselves. And they're very densely settled, too. They have strongly dense populations that all speak in the same language. And then I'm sure the Reformation creates cohesion. And the same confession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have the same for confession the most part. Once, it, once the wars of the Reformation are settled down, you know, Lutherans here and the Catholics there. So that's all happening. Russia lacks all of that background. You know, they didn't get those ideas. They didn't, they didn't get that legal pluralism in their historical heritage. And so what Russia exhibits and through the 18th century is a real sense of confidence as a, as a Eurasian empire. You know, other Eurasian imperial rulers, just like the Russian Tsars, were very proud of their empires. Catherine the Great and Alexander I are on record as saying how proud they are of all of the many diverse peoples, that it must be a sign of 
God's benevolence on Russia, that Russia gets to rule over all of these people and that they're all loyal. Catherine the Great had an audience with Joseph II, who was visiting, he was the Habsburg ruler, visiting Russia, and she she trotted out, you know, folk dances and various other performances uh, to show all of her subject peoples, you know, saying, you know, we live in peace, we live in diversity, and she's proud of it. I mean, you know the Catherine was fascinated, and throughout the 18th century, starting with Peter, there was a lot of study of the Russian Empire. There was a lot of ethnographic study and collecting of artifacts, but Yuri Sloskin has an article on this and other scholars too, that but they did not develop as harsh a sense of racial or even national superiority. The Russians felt that they had a, a better civilization to share with their subject peoples, but they didn't have a real us-against-them disdain that you see in other colonial settings. You know, they were proud of with proud of their subject peoples, in a sense. So, so, they, so they're lacking national consciousness. They have an imperial consciousness, you know, and and that you know to the extent you see Catherine talking about her realm, it's 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 the empire, you know, it's not being Russian. Yeah, at the same time, that obviously Russians were developing a sense of Russian separateness, but that was. You know, you think about Karamazin and Pushkin and all of that in the late 18th century. It's against Europe. You know, what they're they're developing that because they understand. Whoa, those Europeans have very finely developed sense of national sense, and we Russians don't have to be just like them. We don't have to be francophile. We can be our own people. So that's developing, but in in terms of attitudes towards the subject peoples, it doesn't turn into kind of a colonial attitude. Yeah. And this is a complaint amongst kind of Russian ethno-nationalists even today that there's never been a Russian nation. Right. right? That's right. That's right. It's very hard even today because the Russian Federation is still very diverse. And then finally, that leads to actually my last question is, you know, in, in the fact that you focus on and teach and write about early modern Russia, um, what kind of vestiges of the history of this Russian Empire of the 16th up until the 18th century do you think are important for us to understand Russia today or in the 20th century, in the 21st century? Yeah. Well, as you know, that's a loaded question. Of course. <laughs> and, and, and I usually shy away from questions like that because the loaded part of it is that there's been such a tradition of these continuity theories. I, I studied at Harvard not only with um, Pritzok and Keenan, but with Pipes. And I really admire Richard Pipes. He's a great scholar, um, beautiful writer, great researcher. Um, and I disagreed with his interpretations of Russian history, but you got to admire him as a scholar. Um, so anyway, um, he and Martin Malia and there's other people have these continuity arguments that things that got that started in the 16th century endure all the way to Stalin's period. You know, you have people saying that Ivan the Terrible created the secret police and that leads us all the way to KGB, or Ivan the Terrible is a despot and we've had them ever since. Or you have these sort of rises and falls of despotism and liberalism and all of that. Lots of big theories that span centuries. But the centuries that we're talking about are centuries of tremendous change, particularly the 19th century. Um, as we all know, it was fabulous in terms of bringing in lots of different discourses and ideas, and the autocracy actually began to bend, and it created a, um, 
uh, pluralistic and, and uh, almost autonomous legal system uh, to which the Tsar was supposed to be subject and, um, you know, more, more Western legal system and more local government. And then the liberal movement started and the 1905 revolution allowed the creation of political parties. And so Russia went through a whole stage of opening up to political pluralism and liberalism and different ideas. So I don't ever want to make arguments that, that it's inevitable that Russian history traps Russia into developing in a particular way. It does turn out that 20th century Russia looks uh, a little similar to my empire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, and this is where I'm getting. I mean, I think yeah. there, I think there's, there are patterns right, that's of, the thing. of that's the thing. patterns of rule over this vast exactly. landmass. And I think that that's one of the legacies that I, you know, have to begrudgingly say that, you know, probably if you're going to rule over a big, vast landmass like this in early modern or even 19th and 20th century conditions of communication, centralized authoritarian government is the easiest, right? Um, and that is what they have historically had. So it's not surprising that that is what um, Vladimir Putin returns to because it, it is probably the, you know, the best way that the autocrats up to the 20th century could rule with, you know, limited means of communication and limited manpower to do it. In the 20th century, you should be able to overcome, you know, you should be able with TV and radio and telegraph and road building and railroads, and all of that stuff. You should be able to manage a, a, a more pluralistic political engagement across even such big distances. But it is, it has been a Russian tradition to rule that diversity from the center. And, and it's a, it's an easy first reflex. Um, so is there another legacy? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the legacy of my centuries is the ethnic diversity that still characterizes, um, the, um, the Russian Federation. Um, the, many of the ethnic subject peoples splintered off. And in fact, the fact that they could splinter off into the three states of the Baltics and Ukraine and Belarus is testimony to the politics of difference approach of the preceding centuries that those people, and even under Stalin, um, they preserved languages, they preserved elites, they, you know, had a, had, they preserved a sense of self. And again, the Stalin, Stalinist policy was always very careful not to let it become political, but it was intact enough so that Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, um, all, you know, to a lesser extent, I guess, Central Asia, they all felt like independent people who could have an independent state. So that's a, a legacy from the earlier times. Um, and it's something that the Russian Federation should, should deal with now. You know, I find myself a little distressed to see how much Putin's government is trying to push Russian nationalism because it, it tends to be at the expense of tolerance of the diversity of their, of their own federation. But it, but it is, that's the sort of nexus of nationalism versus empire. If you live in this part of the world, nationalism is not your friend. It's not easy to create a nation. Europe enough was diverse enough to have those problems, but in our part of the world, it's really hard to create a nation and deal with your, you know, what do you do with the diversity within it? 
That was Nancy Coleman, the William H. Bonsall Professor of History at Stanford University, specializing in early modern Russia. Her most recent book is The Russian Empire, 1450-1801, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Baby boys.